This summer, we're spending some time in the Old Testament, uh, listening to the words of those who came to be known as the prophets. The word prophet is derived from a Greek word meaning spokesman, and that is what the prophets were. They spoke for God. Yes, sing it out. She's doing it. (laughs) They spoke for God, bringing messages from God to the people of Israel. Sometimes those messages contain words of comfort and encouragement, but more often than not, the prophets spoke to their people in harsh words of accusation and warning. Their intention, however, was not just to condemn the people out of hand, but to call them back to the God who loved them and who sought to save them most often from themselves. In her book, Inspired, Rachel Held Evan writes, Biblically speaking, a prophet isn't a fortune teller or a soothsayer who predicts the future, but rather a truth teller who sees things as they really are, past, present, and future, and who challenges their community to both accept that reality and imagine a better one. Rachel also points out that though the prophet's words are often deemed too critical, they always challenge from a place of deep love for their community. This week we are reading once again from the prophet Hosea who lived in the late 8th century BC. During this time, Israel was split into two kingdoms, the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom which retained the name of Israel. Hosea preached in the northern kingdom though he spoke of Judah as well. Both kingdoms walked a tightrope between the superpowers of their day, Egypt, and Assyria. In their daily lives, however, the people walked a different tightrope, a tightrope between the worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the temptation to worship the gods of their neighbors, especially the gods known as Baals. John Holbert explains, the Baals are immediate gods represented by fertile fields, jars of oil, and succulent smells of bread and roasting meat. In the spring, the cry, Baal Chai, Baal is alive, rang through the mountains and hills of the villages of Israel, and many a Yahweh worshiper joined in, attempting thereby to ensure a bounteous crop and a satisfied family. Though Yahweh worship was demanded in the sacred spaces of that, that God, more than a few Israelites hedged their bets and serenaded Baal with fervency and frequency. The truth-teller Hosea saw both Israel's catering to empires and its worship of Baal as a rejection of Yahweh, the protector and provider of Israel. And he did not hesitate to speak out against Israel's unfaithfulness in more ways than one. He actually lived out his words by marrying a woman known to be promiscuous, giving their children names that were designed to warn Israel that God would no longer claim them as his people if they persisted in breaking the covenant between them. Over and over again, Hosea cried out against the sin of his people and warned them of God's anger and the judgment to come. His words do not always make for easy reading. Yet it is in the 11th chapter of this book that we find some of the most beautiful poetry in all of scripture. In this chapter in which God's relationship with Israel, or Ephraim as it is sometimes called, 
is compared to that of a parent to a child. And it's a chapter that offers a poignant, painful, and powerful testimony to the steadfast love of God. If you think that the Old Testament is just about judgment, while the New Testament is about grace, listen and think again. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the bells and offering incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. They shall return to the land of Egypt, and Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword rages in their cities, it consumes their oracle priests, and devours because of their schemes. My people are bent on turning away from me. To the Most High they call, but he does not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord who roars like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, says the Lord. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. With these words, Hosea recalls for his people their long relationship with God, a relationship that began with God's choice to deliver them from bondage, from slavery in Egypt. Not only did God free them from that bondage, but Hosea reminds them that God adopted them as God's own people, God's children. Almost from the beginning, however, the relationship was troubled. And like a parent struggling with a rebellious teenager, Hosea voices God's confused complaint against his wayward child. The more I called to them, the more they went from me. Instead of rejoicing in their relationship with the God who had saved and claimed them, the people turned away from God, choosing instead to put their faith in idols made by human hands. As God continues to speak, his words become more and more poignant. In touching phrases that evoke our own parenting memories, God recounts the patient and loving way in which the child Israel had been raised. I taught Israel to walk, Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms. I healed them. I led them with bands of cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was like to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down and fed them. This is a father who cares deeply for his child, a mother who tenderly nurtures her little one, a God who is willing to 
bend down to God's people and to lift them up. It's a beautiful image. Beautiful image. Then abruptly the mood shifts. And like a parent who has reached the end of his rope, God's anger bursts forth. They shall return to the land of Egypt, and Assyria shall be their king. In devastating detail, Hosea describes the judgment that is to come upon his people. Israel will return to the bondage out of which God brought them. Not only will their kingdom be conquered by the very foreign powers they have courted, but the people will suffer the ravages of war in their own cities. Furthermore, because they are bent on turning away from God, their cries for help will fall on deaf ears. To the Most High they call, but he does not raise them up at all. No longer will the divine parent bend down and lift them up. No longer will God save them. Like a parent who is compelled to treat his child with tough love, God will allow Israel to suffer the consequences of their actions. But then comes one of the most amazing passages in the entire Bible. A passage in which God suddenly stops his angry rant and turns inward in painful reflection. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. How can I give you up, hand you over, make you like Adma, read Sodom, treat you like Zeboim, read Gomorrah? How can I allow this to happen? When we punish our children, we sometimes say to them rather facetiously, this hurts me more than it does you. But God is not being facetious here. This is a cry of a broken heart. God grieves for God's disobedient children, grieves their unfaithfulness, and struggles with his decision to abandon them to their fate. God is in anguish. And ultimately, God cannot let things stand as they are. Though deeply wounded by Israel's rejection, though there is no indication of their repentance or remorse, God's love grows warm and tender. And God finds it within God's self to make an extraordinary choice. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. In his commentary on this passage, J. Clinton McCann writes, given the people's unwillingness and or ability to repent, to turn, God will do the repenting and the turning. Out of the pain of deep love, God comes to God's self, and instead of turning away in anger, God chooses to remain passionately committed to his people. Well, history tells us that, in fact, Israel did fall to Assyria in 721 B.C. In the final verses of this chapter, Hosea holds out the hope of a renewed future a future that will be made possible by the power of a God who is strong enough to step back and take an honest look at God's self. 
In Hosea's vision, God takes on the role of a great lion who calls his children with a roar, a mighty roar. They will come trembling and vulnerable as well they might, like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. But they need not fear, for God promised them homecoming. Instead of a fierce anger, God offers a fierce grace to his wayward children, grace that comes about not from any change in their attitude or behavior, but because of the power of love, the love of the Holy One who insists on remaining in their midst. As much as we'd rather not admit it, we too are wayward people, seeking our security in things that will ultimately fail us and elevating human values above the value of a relationship with a God who loves us. And yet as this chapter tells us, God loves us still. What this passage does not say is that God promises to save us from suffering the consequences of our actions. When we fall into sin, when we turn away from God, when we fail to act in ways that are loving and life-giving, we will hurt others and we will be hurt. As Dennis Bratcher writes, people fail. And sometimes they sin on purpose and repeatedly before they come to themselves and realize that something needs to change. Sometimes they do not come to themselves until the consequences of their actions have already been worked out in their lives. Endings come unwanted pregnancies, tragic accidents, addictions, alienation of loved ones, divorce, crime, disease, ending come, endings come in all kinds of ways. What this passage does say, however, is that, in the words of Stacy Simpson Duke, our failings will not be the final word. The good news of Hosea 11 is that God's grace works in and through our sin and our struggles to bring about redemption and restoration. God's grace works in and through our endings to bring about new beginnings. This is true for our church as well as for us as individuals. A word of hope for these troubled times. God's grace works in and through us because God's poignant, painful, and powerful love just cannot let God's sons and daughters go, just cannot let us go. This is the bedrock of our faith, the hope that is embodied in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the truth to which we are called, like Hosea, to live out in our relationship with others. This is the gift that we are called to share and for which we sing God's praise. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen.